0: I have to be careful not to be too loud because Mass is going upstairs. Whatever. Right? <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Patrick, did you, what was that? Good for you, that's awesome. So, um, if you haven't been informed yet, one of the things that I forget is, um, I have taught RCIA for 10 years. And prior to that, I was teaching it as a missionary, and like, I've been studying Catholicism for, in in an adult way for 20 years. And so, there's a lot of information, and I know that. Um, so if you're feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm drinking from a fire hydrant, you probably are. This is a great way in between classes. They have so much. And so it's, I always call Formed is the Catholic Netflix. You can go on there and literally like, so the, the man who taught me scripture by and large, Tim Gray, is a total loser, Um, (laughs) he's amazing he's the only person on earth when I hang out with him that I feel like I don't know scripture he's incredible Um, he started this and so his whole mission in life is to help people understand the Catholic faith they have the best Catholic scripture scholars and theologians in the country speaking and it's just super well done so check that out if you log in, and I'd encourage you to write this down. If you can't see it online, um, let me write over the top of it here. Hopefully that helps if you're online. Um, you type in that parish code and it's totally free. The parish pays a subscription, and they have a whole series. Tonight we're still on the Eucharist. They have a whole series on the Eucharist that you can watch that. It'll hit some of the points we've hit, probably more. Um, And it's just a good way to kind of just take time to process all this. Are you in the one on television? I've been in one or two of them, yes. I don't watch them, generally, because I'm like, yeah. Because I hate the sound of my voice. Okay, lots to you tonight, as always, but I, I do feel tonight a little bit like I want to slow down a little bit, and I want to give you guys the chance to just chime in. We've covered so much. Eucharist, there are so many things to talk about, but I want to give you that opportunity tonight. But I'm going to two things first, book recommendations, um, so... Uh, two up here tonight, and I'll leave them out for those of you who are in person. Um, one book that is phenomenal, this is one I do not recommend. Unless you are a, you're used to reading very serious academic theological works, most people will not get through this book. Um, but this is a more academic work called Jesus and the Last Supper. Brant Petrie. Phenomenal. And if you're coming from a Protestant worldview, what he's going to do is he's going to engage not like fringe Protestant thinkers, but the greatest Protestant thinkers out there. Um, And he's going to talk about why do they not believe in the Eucharist? Why should they? Um, If you're interested, we could talk about that a little bit. We could get to that. And I might do it anyways just because now I'm want to tell you why. Um, Same author, but a much more accessible book. And I will tell you, for people who don't have theology degrees, this book blows everyone's mind. Same author, Brandon Petrie, it's upstairs in our bookstore. It's called, um, that's right, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. This book will blow your freaking mind and it's much easier to read than the more academic one. They're very different books, they're not engaging the same questions. I thought this would just be the more like scholarly, more footnotes kind of thing, but it's actually a very different book. Um, but anyway, recommend that. As the names of the first two cups. Yes, there you go. <clears throat> um, so that's Brant Petrie, he's phenomenal. By the way, Brant Petrie um. is on Formed. He's a professor at the Augustin Institute. He's one of the preeminent Catholic scholars in the United States. He has gained um, a huge amount of respect in the scripture community, the scholars, um, for a number of books he's written. But he wrote, with one other guy, he wrote a book in a book on the Old Testament. It's called The Catholic Introduction to the Old Testament. It's like a thousand pages. It's amazing, but anyway. He's a big deal. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. I want to tell you a story, and then we'll open it up for questions about where we're at, where we're going, and then if there's no questions, or at whatever point, we'll move forward. Okay. So look at your sheet. Um, If you're online tonight, we didn't get this out yet. We'll get this handout out to you. We'll send it to you, but it's not there yet. Okay. Um, So on the back side... Last quote on this on the handout tonight. So a book that I have frequently given out to people in RCIA. I don't think we're doing it this year, but this is one of my. When people say, "Okay, Father Brian, I have a friend who's like not sure if they should think about the Catholic Church or not. What should they read?" I kind of have like my list of like five books. This is one of them. I've read this book three times, because it like it will rip your heart out of your chest, and it's, it's just super powerful. So, He Leadeth Me is a reference to Psalm 23. So, Psalm 23 is the most famous psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In verdant pastures, he gives me repose. Beside the quiet or still waters, he leadeth me. Now that's obviously kind of a Shakespeare old translation. But that's where the title comes from. So, he, he leadeth me, Father Walter Chiswick. Let me just tell you, let's read the quote and then I'll tell you the story. Sometimes I think that those who have never been deprived of an opportunity to say or hear Mass do not really appreciate what a treasure the Mass is. I have seen priests pass up breakfast, breakfast and work at hard labor on an empty stomach until noon in order to keep the Eucharistic fast. Because the noon break at work at the work site was the time we could best work together for a hidden mass. So that quote demands the story. You can't understand the quote without the story. So, true story. Father Walter Chiswick will probably be canonized as a saint. He's one of my favorite. His story is just like amazing. So uh, Father Walter Chiswick was a seminarian during World War II. Um, American and kind of like he was kind of one of those guys you think of of like, you know I hate those people who are good at everything. Right? I have friends like this. Father John Nebel. One of my closest friends, good at everything, hate him, <laughs> right? So Father Walter Chiswick was this way. He was, he was an American like poster boy, good at everything. He discerned that he was called to priesthood. He got sent. He was a he entered the Jesuits, which is we'll get to what that is. He was a not a diocesan priest like me, but a religious priest and in an order. We'll explain that with time. But, um, so Father Walter, he goes to Rome to study before he's a priest. And while he's in Rome, what happened is in 1917, um, the racers in here. So a number of, there's three big things that happened in 1917. right now? Three, I mean like world <clears throat> changes. Okay, end of World War One. What else? Uh, Spanish flu okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John. No, okay, four out. big things happened in 1910. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Spanish flu happens, yeah. Okay, but I'm not thinking of that one. What else? What happened in Russia in 1917? The revolution, the revolution. Yeah, the Bolshevik. The Bolshevik revolution happens in 1917, which turns Russia into a communist country. The third one, which we're not going to talk about tonight so much, <clears throat> but the third one is in the same month, in October of 1917, Our Lady of Fatima. And Our Lady of Fatima specifically relates to this. So so communism, you might not know this. The Catholic Church is inherently opposed to communism. There are every single pope since communism has appeared has denounced communism. There's a number of reasons for this. The most obvious, though, is that communism is by definition and intrinsically atheistic. And what communism does is it says the individual person doesn't matter. What matters is what's communal. And so you can sacrifice an individual for the sake of what is the common good. Um, That's overly simplified, but it's also true. Um, But in 1917, the Germans, they sent Karl Marx on a train back to Russia, and they did it so that they would take Russia out of the war, so he would. So Marx goes back to, to Russia, he'd been exiled, he starts the Bolshevik Revolution along with others, long story, it's complicated, but that starts, and so Russia, is, you might not know this, Russia has been one of the most Christian nations in the history of the world Russia is an Orthodox country which is very 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 close to Catholicism um, it's a deep deeply religious country um, and there's I'm gonna stop nuancing there's lots of nuances but with the Bolshevik Revolution communism comes it becomes atheistic by the way in the same month Our Lady of Fatima this is so cool if I was God and I'm like I want to deal with history what I would do is I would be like Well, I'm going to send someone who's amazing and talented and powerful and beautiful to Russia to counter that. What God did is he sent his mother to a bunch of, to three poor nobodies in Fatima, Portugal. And she asked, and Mary, when she appears in Fatima, she asks for the world to pray for Russia to turn from atheism to God. Three nobodies. That's how God tends to work. It's kind of like Mary, right? Like, God doesn't, when Herod's going to kill Jesus, or, like, when, when the world's going south, God tends to appear to the lowly and the humble. Fatima, if you go there in Portugal, it's in the middle of nowhere. Okay, I digress. As always. So, Walter Chiswick is how we got on all of this. Fast forward to World War II... Walter Chiswick is an American, I think he's from Kansas. He goes to Rome, he's studying, and while he's in seminary, studying for priesthood, a priest comes to his university and says, we need heroic men who will sacrifice their lives for Russia. He volunteers, and he's ordained a priest, and when he's ordained, They can't get him into Russia because World War II is still happening. Um, So they send him to Poland. So he goes to Poland. True story. He's in Poland, and while he's there, the Russians invade Poland. Um, His people and his church, nobody can find work. They're all starving. So they all go into Russia to look for work. They take trains, and there's a promise of, like, work. Long story short, he goes to Russia. Um, he He's hiding because he's a priest, and the communists don't like priests. So he gets on this train, but he's arrested as a, they accuse him of being a Vatican spy. Um, and I forget all the years. I should have looked this up, but I don't have any time in my life. But Father Walter Chiswick would spend the next decades, plural, in concentration camps and gulags in Siberia. That's where this quote comes from. And so Prior to Vatican II, so when you go to Mass, if you, if you become Catholic, before you receive the Eucharist, you have to fast from food for an hour ahead of time. So that means if you go to Lord's, don't eat in church. Because I go so long. That's all it means. But prior to Vatican II, you had to fast for 12 hours. And so he tells the story. It's one of the most beautiful. The end of the story is a page turner. It's an amazing book. But Father Walter Chiswick, he's in a gulag. And what happens is the, the Russians are starving these political. And military prisoners to death. They work all day, they give them just enough food to keep them alive. Um, and what he did as a priest is he memorized the prayers of the Mass and he would lay in his bunk, and if you read this quote, at the lunch break people had fasted 12 hours and they would skip breakfast. Because they wanted to receive Jesus in the Eucharist, so he would lay in his bed, and he had memorized all the words of the Mass, and he would say Mass with a drop of wine and water in his hand, and a piece of bread in the other. Amazing stuff. Um, super heroic. I think he will be canonized as a saint. If he's not, I'm in big trouble, (laughs) And And his his book, I would encourage you, if you're looking for a good book, it's not a hard book. It's a page-turner. It's super inspiring, and it's also very deep, and it'll inspire you to a deeper Christian life. So, okay. That quote, though, right, what he's talking about is that a lot of people, we get used to going to Mass, and it's like, People in Denver are like, Father Brian, why isn't your mass at a different time? And I'm like, there are six parishes in a one-half-mile radius that you can go to mass to at any time. And we get used to like kind of being like, everything is there for me. Um, and I love that quote. He's like, until you've gone without, sometimes you don't appreciate things. Um, okay, so that's just a beautiful story. Questions about the Eucharist. We've got more to cover tonight, but anything that's on your heart or your mind—questions, thoughts, conundrums—yes. I know. I think last week you mentioned you were going to talk about transubstantiation. Yes.
1: So
0: i just wanted to ask. Yep. On yep. Let's do it. You be a question. Yes. Thank you. Um, so was, the question was about transubstantiation. So So oftentimes what happens and he, here's one of the things I'm going to show you with, with, with the Catholic Church, um, one of the big deals in the Acts of the Apostles is when, Peter and Paul and different apostles go in front of Roman officials and Jewish officials as well. One of the things they're blown away by is that these are uneducated men. Now Paul's different. Paul was very well educated, but he's the exception. Everyone else, these are not scholars, these are not university professors, these are these are s- simple, humble men. And, but they have a confidence, and so what happens is, they say, look, I don't know that I can explain it, but this is what happened, and I will die for this, and they did, by the way, they did die for it. Um, And so sometimes in church history, and actually very frequently in church history, an event happens... And, we, and people are like, this is it. This is, I saw it with my own eyes. This is it. And later on, there's understanding of how. We haven't gotten to this yet, we're very close. But like one of the big questions probably many of you have is about gay marriage, which is a very important topic. Is something that we need to treat with compassion, with logic, and we need to do that well, and I'm gonna try my best. Um, but here's the thing: <clears throat> this is a good analogy for transubstantiation, because in, in the sense is that prior to 20, I think it was like 2003, no civilization in the history of all human beings had ever believed that two people of the same gender could be married, ever. Even people who promoted sexuality between people of the same gender. So in Greece and Rome, there was a lot of promotion of sexual activity between two men or two women, but we literally don't know of a single civilization in all of history that has ever believed there could be a marriage between two men or two women. So what happened was everyone assumed that, but they didn't always know how to explain why. So there was an assumption around that, and then later on, we had to say, why Why is, does this make sense? And if it does, why? And So in 2003, I think it was 03, when I think it was the Netherlands, it was the first country to, to say, hey, you know what, there could be a marriage between two people of the same sex. Um, people who traditionally said, well, it's always been this way, they had to ask themselves, how or why? Transubstantiation is very much like that. And so ancient Christians, all they knew is this is truly the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And, and if you... One of the great reasons people become Catholic if they're from a Protestant background is they read the earliest Christians. And the earliest Christians, they all say, 100% for sure this is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And someone says to them, no, it's not. It's a symbol. Then they have to say, why or how can this be the body and blood of Jesus Does that make sense? So what the church does oftentimes, and by the way, this is exactly what happened with the Trinity. Which I, by the way, I blame you all. Pardon my French, but I get endless shit from the companions because Trevor had to teach you the Trinity because I didn't. Okay? (laughs) I'm like, I get made fun of for that now every single week at my dinner table. Thank you. Um, but it was a similar paradigm is that what happened was the earliest Christians, they were like no, God is three and somehow he's one and that's all over the New Testament the most obvious place is the baptism of Christ but it happens at the Annunciation it's all kinds of places Um, the Transfiguration, for instance the the Great Commission in Matthew 28 there's an event, it happened And people say, well, how did it happen? And think about, like, eyewitness testimony. Sometimes, like, I got in, did you ever get in the show Bones? Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. (laughs) Like, sometimes something happens, and people are like, well, this doesn't make sense. And people are like, well, I don't know yet how to explain how that happened, but I know this happened. And I know this is here. So transubstantiation, what does it mean? So, what this answers is the question of change. And so the church wrestled about what is change. So what we believe is that Mass, the bread and the wine go through change. Right. And so what happens is What's bread and wine becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ, which is taught all throughout the New Testament. The question is how? Because guess what? It still looks like bread. It still looks like wine. It still tastes like bread. It still tastes like wine. So, transubstantiation answers this question. And what it does is there is two pieces of change. So, there in anything that exists, any physical thing at least, um, you have two ways of looking at a being. You have substance and accidents. So. All of us go through changes all the time. So, does, it, does anybody know? I, I should know this. Your body, every however many of years, however many number of years, changes out all of its cells. Does anybody know how long that takes? I, I really don't know. Seven years? Yeah. I think that's right. I'm probably wrong. But if it's not all, it's at least a huge number. So anyway, there's a change there. Every so often, or like, and maybe here's something that I'm 100% sure of. If you take a photo of me from when I was five, and now I've put on a little weight, right? I look very different from when I was five. So five-year-old Brian and 40-year-old Father Brian, they look really different, but somehow we say that's right. This question is a very deep question. This is the question that started one of the most important branches of philosophy in the ancient world: is how how can you still say that's right? And. The traditional answer, and, I, and I've never heard an answer, by the way, the Enlightenment period tried very hard to find a different answer to this, and they failed. They couldn't find a, a good answer for this. Aristotle, the Catholic Church, St. Thomas Aquinas, what, eventually, what, what we came to is that <clears throat> when there's a change in something, there's two types of changes you can either change the substance or the accidents. So, um, when I was five, like let's say 10 years from now, when I finally given up on my hair, <laughs> right? And I'm like, buzz my head, which all the ladies are like, and then you'll all say to me after mass, don't do that, or mass, after class.
2: <laughs>
0: but when I, but like if my hair's all gone, we still say, well, there's the substance of what Brian is is still there. And your hair is accidental. By the way, some of the Enlightenment philosophers, like uh, Hume, um, the British empiricists, what they tended to think, and there, there there's some out there who actually thought that change is always there's no continuity so they actually believe like i i'm not the same person when i was five and not just like i'm a changed man i'm different like literally i'm a different human person that's crazy no one believes that the question is how does that change happen and so what what oftentimes happens is our accidents change if you take a tree You cut it down, you make it into wooden planks, you make it into a table, right? It no longer looks like a tree, it's now changed into a table. And the Eucharist, right, and again, critical to this, Peter didn't know this. Peter does not have an intellectual system. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 does not have a philosophical system of how this happens. He just knows it happened. And I bet you've had moments like that in your life where people are like, there's no way that happened. And you're like, I don't know how it happened, but it, it happened. And I, and I will, you know, Whatever. Like, I will never see it on that point, it happened. Later on, like, <clears throat> you get to a point where you understand more deeply what happened in the past. Right, like, I, I, an easy example in my life would be like, times when I've fallen in love with a girl. And I'm like, and I look back and I was just like, my head was spinning and I knew I fell in love and I didn't know fully what was going on, and later on in my life, I can look back and say, um, I understand myself more deeply than I actually did back then. And I can look back and I can think through it, and it was beautiful and it was good, and I understand it more deeply. Okay, so in the Eucharist, usually what happens is the and it changed the accidents change. As I get older, I have the slow but inevitable slide into irrelevancy and obesity, right? (laughs) That's what happens. Those are accidents, right? The substance, there's something in me that continues. But in the Eucharist, what happens? Those things stay the same. And the substance is what changes. So it still has the appearance of the externals, but the substance is actually what changes. The only other change we know of that is that way is what we call death. A minute after you die, your body will still be there, but you won't. The accidents are still there, but the substance, That's what happens, and so trans-substantiation. Trans in Latin means change. Substantiation, right? Substance. So it's a change not of the accidents, but it's a change of the substance. I spent probably like six weeks in philosophy studying this, that was 20 minutes or so. Questions, pushback, complaints. Yeah, so Michelle?
1: How could you explain that about, um, like how you started off this and people were like, no
2: it doesn't, it's a symbol. Mm-hmm.
0: I can't go into 20 minutes of what you just said Yep. make somebody, what would be an easy way to say that? So, so two things I would say. Um, how do I, so Michelle's question was, If someone says, no, that's just a symbol, how do I say it? Two things I would say. So, an early church father, a guy named Theodore of Mopsuestia, he basically just says, yeah, it is. Um, But what he says is, he says, he has a great quote where he says, the Lord did not say, this is a symbol of my body. This is my body. And he says that in one of his sermons. And and the way to really explain this in the 30-second version is, okay, look, Jesus didn't say this is a symbol. Did I tell you the story when I was in college about that? Some of you will know UCF, University Christian Fellowship. I went to a UCF night, and I was a freshman in college, and my friend Tracy Ketchum, total babe, she invited me to UCF at, Uh, what was that classroom? What's the big classroom in... um, I don't know. There's a big one in C. It's one of them. There's tons of them. No. It doesn't matter. Whatever. We went to this thing, UCF. A pastor got up, and and that night, he was teaching on the Eucharist. I was a freshman in college. I was 18 years old. And he got up, and he's got his Bible out, and he's like, he's reading from the Last Supper. And he's like, so Jesus, after Supper had ended, he took the bread, and he said... This is a symbol of my body. And I was in row 18 at CU, whatever room I was in, and I was, I was like burning up inside and I wanted to scream. And I wanted to just stand up and I wish I would have, but I was 18. And there's a, a pastor who's probably my age now. And I wanted to scream and say, that is not what it says. I award you no points and may God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's what I wanted to say. But I couldn't say it because I was too intimidated. Um, so what, what uh, Saint Th- or Theodore of Mopsuestia says is God didn't say that. And the follow-up to that is this. How does God create the world? How, he spoke it into being. And the church fathers say this. They say when God speaks, it becomes reality. And so Jesus doesn't say this is a symbol. He says, this is my body. Um, And then what you do, and and the second point I would say, Michelle, is like, you can explain everything I just said. You seen a little practice. No, I don't think, and and, I mean, I I sympathize. Um, I have given... People are always like, oh, Father Brian, I can never say what you said. I have given more train wreck talks than you can possibly imagine. More than, like, one more story about my screw ups. When I was a focused missionary, there were these two freshmen at the University of North, North Dakota. It's my favorite story about why I'm an idiot. And they, it was after mass one Sunday, and I was trying to get people to join a Bible study. And there were these two freshmen guys And they were like, I was like, hey, you know, you're trying to like not be awkward, because it just feels like a little forward, like hey, want to come to a Bible study? (laughs) And if I'm a freshman in college, I'm like, hell no. No, I don't, (laughs) right? And so you're trying to be sneaky, you're like, hey, how you guys doing, how's (laughs) math? Yeah, cool, yeah, you guys like hockey? (laughs) Cool, "Ah." And I'm like playing the game, I'm like, okay, yeah. It's going pretty well and at some point I'm like okay they're warm we're talking I'm like hey have you guys ever uh, would you ever think about joining a Bible study and they're like yeah no we really wouldn't we're not interested and I'm like okay play cool <laughs> you guys like basketball <laughs> and I did this like, true story and eventually I was like came back I'm like hey you want to join a Bible study no we, we, we really don't and I was like you know you really probably know less about your faith than like a ten year old. That literally came out of my mouth. <laughs> and I like I watched the words and I was like alright worst moment ever. Point being, you never get good at something if you don't try. You're gonna screw up. You're gonna say it wrong. So what? When I when I die, Jesus isn't gonna be like, hey, Brian. Didn't say that too well. I'm going to be proud of those moments. I'm going to be like, Lord, I, I suck at this. I'm not good at it. But I tried. So try, and I promise you, will get better. That's the only way to get better. Try. And then call me. You'll be like, FB, substance accidents. And we'll walk through it. You'll get better. Angel, right, We talk about um, evangelical Protestant churches having a duty to convert
2: mm-hmm. to Catholicism.
0: so I would say so substance and accidents would be a good analogy substantially Catholicism is evangelical accidentally right now it is absolutely not so Paul VI in um, I forget which year it was but he wrote an encyclical called Evangelium Nunciandi and In that encyclical, he says the entire reason the Catholic Church exists is to evangelize. It's the only reason it exists. And Pope Benedict has echoed that. Pope John Paul II echoed that. Pope Francis has echoed that. And honestly, like, the long church in the church has done that. And there's a tension of, like, Catholic teaching and what the church is in her core And the failure of Catholics oftentimes live up to that. So right now, and what I would just challenge all of you guys on, you guys are my people. Like, almost no priest teaches RCIA. I do it for a lot of reasons. I love it. But honestly, I'm like, the Catholic Church exists to win souls for Jesus Christ. And people have forgotten that, and they're not doing it. And so usually, and you, you hear Catholics say this all the time, Catholics who have been raised Catholic, when they meet converts, they're like, they're kind of jealous. They're like, man. you like, you're on fire and you are like, know this? That's what we need in the Catholic faith. And so, so, come back at me, but I'm like, the church in her essence exists purely to evangelize. Paul VI said that, but you go back to like St. Justin Martyr in the second century, he says that. Um, all through history, we believe that, but right now we suck at it. Not to put too fine a point. But. Perspective thoughts? I guess, um, oh, no, no,
2: back. Back. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I was just gonna follow up on like, what you
1: just said there. It's like, I think, I, think I totally agree with you. I think it's just hard because then people are like, well, oh, why can't I just go to this church? Like, you're kind of like trying to talk about Christ and you're talking about yep. Christianity, and then you kind of get into the conversation of like, it's all to so um, specific, and um, I think I just get a lot of, but oh, why can't I just go to this church? Because I am like one, like I'm one for Christ now. Yep. I believe in Christ now. but That's, Yep.
0: So I'm going to be a jerk and sure. put it back on you yeah. and everybody else. How would like? I have an answer for that, but after after however long I've been in RCIA, like what 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 do you think you would try to say about? And by and again like, so so when I was a focused missionary. And I was like, which is the Catholic version of Campus Crusade. I was out sitting at college lunch tables with awkward college kids, trying to somehow sneak them into talking about Jesus. And I was terrible at it, and I have failed in every possible way you can imagine. I have failed miserably. I've, like, you have no idea what it's like to be a priest and give the worst homily ever. And you sit up there and you're just like, what I want to do after some homies, and I just want to be like, I am so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I literally want to do that. and like, but you know what? I'm trying. And I just think we need to try But, But what would you say right now? like, If someone says that to you, what, what would be an attempt to try to answer that? Well, I probably would kind of approach it from like faith and works perspective that we talked about. Okay, faith and works.
1: And I think that's something people can be really passionate about really quickly, is helping others. And so I kind of probably try to start in that way. Good. Um, and then maybe just bring in more of just the early, the like John chapter 6 kind of stuff where right. like this, the Eucharist being the pinnacle of our faith and how it truly is yep. very important just another facet of the
0: Christian faith. Good. So John 6, Eucharist is the pinnacle. Amen. Okay, somebody else, jump in. What would you say?
1: I think, like, I mean, what I kind of try to do, not that I'm like at it or whatever, but, like, just try to show by example, of like, okay, well, you know, like, I'm not sure about it either, like, church is hard, faith is hard, you know, you have to have faith, but, you know, like, if you want to learn about it, come with me. Yep. We'll figure it out together.
0: Good, so for our TV audience. So she talks about like living it by example, right? So there's a quote of St. Francis of Assisi, which apparently he never said because no one's ever been able to find it. But people say he said it is um preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. Right? So Saint Francis preached the gospel by the way he loved others, and by the way he walked, and by the way he lived poverty. And so if you live by example, right, like Mother Teresa probably couldn't answer, like if Mother Teresa was asked like, hey, can you explain like, um, explain Romans three where it seems like St. Paul says you are saved by faith alone? I don't know, but I would guess Mother Teresa maybe couldn't give a really good intellectual argument to that. But then she went outside into Calcutta's gutters and picked up lepers. And people were like, okay, I'll be Catholic, <laughs> right? That's a good answer. What else? Okay. Yeah. Um, I go with legitimacy of the
2: church as the church is Christ's bridegroom, and the apostles are the first, like, essentially priests of that, and then, but I want not be Protestant? I would say, they don't read the Bible fully.
0: Okay. So, uh, like, a legitimacy of the church and the fullness of the scriptures and reading them all. Okay. Nigel?
2: Uh, I really like your um, description of uh, week five of 30,000 different versions of
0: Protestant yeah. churches and one church with one doctrine for 2,000 years. Yeah. That really resonated with me. Yeah. That was huge for me in my conversion. I was already Catholic but embracing my faith. So Nigel said 30,000 different Protestant denominations versus one church that has taught the same thing for 2,000 years. Again, so, so these things, you guys are on the right, you got this, right? Like, those are not, like, one knockdown argument where people would be like, oh my gosh, can I please have Father Brian's number? Uh-huh. That's not going to happen, but those are powerful witnesses, right? And so, like, um, the one thing I would say, and every one of you will answer this differently, praise God. Jesus needs different witnesses. Um, the way that I say it is I say, when people say, isn't you know, I love Jesus, isn't that enough? After that, isn't it just, you're a Presbyterian, I'm a Methodist, you're a Catholic. Um, And my mentor, Tim Gray, always says, how can you say you love the King, but you don't love his kingdom? How can you say you love the King, but you don't love his kingdom? All throughout the Gospels, Jesus' number one topic is the kingdom of God. And a kingdom has authority. and all not one passage, not two all over the place. Jesus gives authority to the early church, and especially to the apostles who are the first bishops. And so it's just compelling. And so like Chesterton says, and the reason why there's not just one answer to this very good question is, um, uh, Chesterton says, a person doesn't really believe something because it makes sense. A person believes something when everything else makes sense because of it. So I'm not a Catholic because of one of those things we talked about. I'm Catholic because nothing makes sense without it. Right? We started class with like, does God exist? I can't make sense of the world if God doesn't exist. I can't make sense of my heart. I can't make sense of the order of the universe. I can't make sense of truth and goodness and beauty. I can't make sense of, of existence. I can't do it, right? Um, and and all through all these things, you know, there's there's the three big questions: Does God exist? Is Jesus God? Did Jesus give authority to the Catholic Church? And for me, like I have found life and joy and meaning in my life, and difficulty and a cross, and like Jesus, why the heck did you call me to priesthood? I'd rather have a super attractive wife and eighteen kids, right? And if I had a super attractive wife and eighteen kids, I'd be like, why didn't you call me to priesthood?
2: Right?
0: <laughs> it's but I but I but at the end at the end of the day, I'm like I'm not good at this. But I I, I, I can't be anything in seminary I remember like um, Father Hellstrom, who's a very holy priest who I respect so much he said at one point, he said at some point if you're really called to priesthood what happens is you find that it's impossible for you to be anything else it's kind of weird I'm like, because I'm like I always you've heard me say it many times, I'm always like I get jealous of married people, I'm like man I was, I, my big joke is I'm like, if you're married, you know, you have a hard day at work, you come home, your wife pours you a glass of wine, get, like rubs you on the shoulders, and it's like, honey, how was your day? I'm like, let's let's kiss for a little bit, here's a glass of wine. Right? When I was hear, women always say, man, that does sound nice. <laughs> they like, that never happens. Um, but I have found in my life, um, are there moments of doubt? Of course there are. Are there difficulties? Of course there are. And when you meet someone who doesn't have those, I don't trust those people. But I, I find myself, I cannot be anything else. Catholicism speaks to the deepest desires and meanings of my heart. It speaks to my mind. Um, I know the world's bankrupt. There are moments, we talked last week about John six, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, hey, are you guys going to leave? Everyone else is leaving because Jesus teaches, hey, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Everyone leaves. Jesus says, hey, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, where else are we going to go? I've had moments like that where I'm like, I am so beat down. I am so beat down by people in the church. I'm so frustrated with X, Y, and Z. Lord, there's nowhere else to go. can't do it. So how do you find the secret thing to
1: loving God's kingdom? Because I personally
0: am really struggling sure with that right now. Okay. Um, question was, how do you love God's kingdom? How do you, when you're struggling with that, how do you learn to love God's kingdom? So expand on that. What are you struggling with? The church being difficult? Church scandals? You
2: no, know, it's, it's more of a...
0: So, I would... So, good. So, we don't... So, Michelle, correct me if I misquote you. So, <clears throat> we don't even... We, we, there's such division. We don't have a common goal. Even if it's not God, we, we just hate each other as such awful awful things in the world. Am I hitting this right? Okay. Yes. I love what you're saying. The kingdom of God is the healing of that wound. So, origin who is probably the greatest scripture scholar in the history of Christianity. So what he says is he says, when when we pray in the Our Father, thy kingdom come, what Origen says is he says, whenever you pray that prayer, you are praying for God to reign inside of you. What's the cause of division, right? Republicans hate Democrats, Democrats hate Republicans. Um, Class divisions, race divisions, um, people in your neighborhood don't mow their lawn. I don't know. right? Um, priests have jealousy of each other. Um, that's totally real stuff. The problem with all of those divisions is that something's wrong inside of us. And so origin says the kingdom of God means that Jesus Christ reigns inside of me. And so my pride, where I can never admit that I'm wrong because I'm Brian Larkin and I know everything about everything, um, and uh, my vanity, where I'm just, all I care about is not what's true and right, but I just care about what people think, and my lust and my um, avarice, where my, I love money, and all these things, this is what causes divisions. And so Origen says, so God's kingdom is precisely the thing we need to love. Because when God's kingdom comes... It means that, that Christ reigns inside of me, and he casts out these sins. And, you know, there, there's externals as well, right? Like, this is why the bishops and the papacy matter, right? If you Because you do have really good people who really disagree with each other. Really good people who have best intentions, and they're like, you know what, I know you see it that way, and you see it that way, and you're both, you're really trying, but you just can't see it the same way. And what's happened in, since the Reformation is, if these two couples disagree with each other, you know, these two start a church and these two start a church. And what happens in God's kingdom is certain people have authority, and they say, you know what, we love you, but this 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 strain is wrong. And we believe the Holy Spirit protects that. And so when I think of it that way, oh, I can't wait for that. I can't wait for when I can talk to a uh, Southern Baptist and they're not immediately suspicious of me for whatever X, Y, or Y reason, X, Y, or Z. Um, right, something like that. Does that sound? Okay, Claire. This is kind of like going back to when you're saying, like,
1: in, when you're up in Boulder and you're disagreeing with what the pastor was saying. Do you think
0: that there's a um, translation of a Bible that says that the Eucharist is a symbol of Jesus' body? There is not a single translation. Okay. So the question was, is there a translation of the Bible that says that the Eucharist is a symbol? Nowhere in Scripture does it ever say that. That sucks. That'd be fun. Well, and and one of the things, like if you listen to our podcast, Mm -hmm. Gregorian rant, (laughs) 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 we've talked about this a little bit, But one of the things that I like to always say um, is that we should always try to find what's good in what other people are saying. Like we can't ignore our disagreements, but we should. If you just see people's wrongs, you just hate them. And what we should start with, so with that pastor, who I was mad as all hell with and still am, and someday I'm going to beat him. Um, But what I want to say with him is, he really thinks the Eucharist is a symbol. And he thought, I'm sure, I can't read his mind, but I'm sure he thought college students aren't able to to digest all of this yet. And so I think with good intentions, he was trying to do that. I would just love to talk to him now and be like, you can't change the words of God. You don't have that authority. Um, Neither do I. Okay, more questions. This is kind of good. We never do this. Yeah, Steph? One of the questions
1: online was, like, what do you think of um, like, traditional Catholic culture, the trad, in quotes, mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: Oh
0: boy. <laughs> so, try to be brief. So this is, one, this is one of my biggest, I'll just say the word. RCIA is like the place where I'm like, and it, hopefully I can be this way always, but I just wanna be myself and raw with you guys. Um, so th- there's a big movement in the church of traditionalism, and I want to be brief because we could get, we could spend two weeks on this. What this is is it tends to emphasize Latin Mass, um, kind of a rigorous morality. Um, what else? Veils, yeah, chapel veils. Which is in 1 Corinthians 9. We can talk about that if you want. Um, here's, here's the thing. So, oh gosh, how do I do this quickly? Um, I'm against this. There is a place for it in the church. So there is a the traditional Latin Mass, something called the TLM, traditional Latin Mass. This is a very controversial subject of Lords right now, and in the Denver Catholic community, and a lot of people have left Lords for this. And so I'm a little bit, I've got a little chip on my shoulder. So I'm trying not to operate out of that. Do my best. Um, What happens is that people look at, so after Vatican II, Vatican Council II, um, 19, it's like 62 to 66, question mark, something, somewhere in there. Something like that. What happened is the, the mass that you go to now is it grew out of this. It's very much the same mass, but it moved to the vernacular. So it's in English in the United States, it's in German in Germany, um, whatever language. Um, and then there, were, there was a simplification of things. And so to, I'll do, try and do this quickly. Um, we can come back to it later. We should talk about the Eucharist a little bit tonight. <laughs> Big topic. So, think of these years. So what happened is that prior to that, you had a traditional kind of culture in the United States. Um, the The contraceptive pill, we're gonna talk about that. That hits the market in 1968. Uh, I think it's July of 1968. The FDA approves it. Um, sexual revolution happens. Uh, you have civil rights movement, which is obviously a very good thing. You have women's rights, which I think had a lot of good things and had a lot of problems with it as well. Um, Lots of things are happening. The world turns upside down in the years following this, and what a lot of Catholics do is they say, hey, you know what, we've got a 50% divorce rate. We now, people are like, gay marriage is fine, people can have sex whenever they want to have sex. There's no respect for traditional norms, and they say, and this is an oversimplification, but a lot of Catholics say, you know what the problem is? Vatican II. And so what they say is they say we need to go back here. Yeah. Is there a
2: no problem with
0: character? So I putting the rules down. Yeah. Yeah, there, I, I agree. There's a problem with like the character of the times. So the first thing I tell people is I say, look, you can't blame the sexual revolution on Vatican. If you read Vatican II's documents, which you probably won't because no one does because they're boring, I have read them many, many times. They're boring. You will not... Be, Vatican II is not like, hey, you know all that stuff we thought about Jesus? Who cares? <laughs> Guess what? It doesn't say that. Vatican II says things like, hey, you know what? We should love and respect everyone. We should like really like be attentive to the Word of God. Um... It's, it, literally, you're reading to be like, blah, 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 blah. There's nothing exciting about it until, um, in the documents. So that's one thing. But here's the deeper thing, and we'll leave it at this, and we'll come back if you guys want later. Here's the real paradigm. What happened in the incarnation, the moment that God became man? So, if you know, God What happened is that something that is eternal, um, unspeakable, etc., 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 entered what is in time and what is um, speakable, visible, sensible. Right? We could put invisible, visible, silent, audible, transcendent, eminent. We could put all those things up here. And what happened is that Jesus is the marriage of these things. So what and I said earlier with Gregorian rant, what we say all the time is you should see what's good in other people's arguments. What traditionalists, what they see that is good and they're right about is this. Truth doesn't change. If if abortion was wrong in the first century, which the early Christians tell us it is, then it can't be right in the 21st. By the way, Vatican II doesn't say that. Um, Truth doesn't change. We've talked about that all through our CIA. But here's, here's my polemic against traditionalism, is what is eternal has to speak in time. For. And so the Latin Mass, the whole reason that the, the Mass was in Latin is because everyone spoke Latin. Jesus didn't speak Latin. You'll hear people say, Latin's a holier language. Pardon my French. No, it's not. It's not a holier language. There's nothing like that. Jesus spoke Aramaic. The New Testament is written in Greek. St. Jerome, in the early, and even before that, the early Christians translate things into Latin so people could understand. Jesus became a man so that we could understand who God is. I don't speak Latin. Right? And like, I don't live in 13th century France. I live in 21st century America. So um, there's a place, and there's, we could spend days and hours and hours on this. There's a place for the tradition, but it needs to live in time. And so the Mass, if you, when you go to my Mass here at Lourdes, it's very much the same as the Mass St. Augustine said in the 4th century, St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th. You know, it's it's the same through time. But we don't say it in Latin. My vestments are not exactly the same as they were in the 15th century. There's external changes because we live in a different time. But, remember we started all this tonight with substance and accidents. This is good, I need to use this more. This is a good argument. What I would say is traditional Catholicism Wants to hang on to both of these. What I would advocate for, and I think this is the truth, is the church has to change because it has to live in time. It can't change this. But this, the accidents, have to change. Because when when you know, like when you read um, you read Shakespeare, it's the old English. And Mercutio is talking to like Romeo, and you're like, "What the f is going on?" (laughs) Right? I'm like, I have no idea what they're saying. That's an accident. You needed to speak in 21st century English. Okay, tonight's blown. Any last (laughs) questions? (laughs) Yeah, uh, Carla. Yeah, is
1: it correct to say that like? The, the Eucharist is not physically Jesus?
0: Is that correct or not correct? Incorrect. So the, okay. so the question is, Is it? can you say the Eucharist is not physically Jesus? No, you can't. Okay. The Eucharist is physically Jesus. And again, like I would point someone again, like the event and then the understanding. But just read John 6. So it's, but
1: it's not... Is it, is it, but it's not
0: physically flesh. So think of that dis- distinction. It is flesh. So Jesus says, John 6.53, my for um, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So what the church would say is think of that accident substance thing. If the accidents change, it's still you. Right? Like if you lost, if my arm got cut off, no one's like, okay, there's a change there. It's no longer Father Brian. They'd be like, no, well, your arm is accidental to your substance. So Brian is still there. There's a change, but the accident changed. So the Eucharist is the opposite. So the accidents are still there, but it it is a physical. So you, so Carly, this is the way of saying it. So Carly, you are soul and body union. You are not your soul, nor are you your body. You're a composite of the two, right? So in this analogy, and this is analogous, it's not the same thing, usually what happens is like we would say your soul is like a substance and your body can be accidental. That's dangerous. It's not quite right. My metaphysics philosophy professor would kill me if she heard me say that. Um, But analogously, what we're seeing here is like, the physical aspect of the Eucharist remains the same. This changes, but it's still one thing. Does that make sense? It's one thing. Okay, Nicole. I should have I'm trying to wrap my
1: head around. In the Last Supper, does that point out another reason about why we, how often we should be given the
0: Eucharist? I know it's in the community right. every Sunday, but like, yeah. daily? Yeah. Yep, so how often day? should we be doing this? Um, so now for last supper, so there's a quote I think that I printed on your sheet. So back page top quote. So the question is like, how often should we do this? So if the if the last supper right is the Passover. And we're like, okay, like Jesus fulfills the Passover and the Last Supper. Well, guess how often the Passover happens? Once a year. Okay. Once a year. So there's there's a logical question to say, why don't we just have the Eucharist once a year? So your top quote. Scholars frequently cite the testimony of early Christian writings, such as the Didache. It's kind of fun if you're when you're studying, you'll be like, the Didache, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> which I said many times. <laughs> I was probably like trying to impress people. I'm like. Oh, you know, the didache. (laughs) Anyway. So the Didache and Justin Martyr, which make it abundantly clear that the Christian Eucharist, in contrast to the Jewish Passover, was being celebrated on each day of the Lord, or on the day we call the Day of the Sun, which is Sunday. So the reason for this, Nicole, is that the Last Supper doesn't say that, but... With the Last Supper, it's not just the Passover that does this, yeah. it's also the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is the day of worship for Jews and they celebrate it weekly. And what what this is I don't know if we talked about this, but what happens is that on the Sabbath, Jews celebrate two things. What are the two things really quick? Love it when you whisper. Love it. What was it? They celebrate when God rested. Okay, rest. So rest, and that's creation. So that's Genesis 1 and Exodus 20. There's another thing they celebrate on Sabbath. I saw that. <laughs> the only thing to celebrate is the redemption of Exodus. That's what I said. I thought, <laughs> I thought so. Which is in Deuteronomy chapter 5. It's where God makes that explicit. So when the Jews on the Sabbath, every Saturday, they remember two things. They remember that God made the world, they made it good. And they celebrate that they were slaves. And read Deuteronomy 5, the commandment to rest and to observe Sabbath. God says, on the Sabbath, you will remember you were a slave, and I brought you out of slavery. Early Christianity takes that and says, and Jesus did this, Sunday is the day of the new creation. St. Augustine says on Sunday, the first day of the week, in Genesis 1, God says, let there be light. Augustine says that was a prophecy of the resurrection. The true creation happens with Jesus, right? Mary Magdalene goes and discovers Jesus in a garden, doesn't know who he is, thinks he's the gardener on sunrise of Sunday morning. That is no accident. The early Christians call it the eighth day, which is why our baptismal font has eight sides, because when you are baptized, you'll be baptized into the new creation, the promise of resurrection on a Sunday. That's, That's what it is. The second thing, right, is that, God calls the Jews, remember, they were slaves and they were redeemed out of slavery. Guess what the resurrection did? It freed you from your slavery to sin. And so the early Christians say, we worship every Sunday, the Passover and the Sabbath come together at the Last Supper, and they're both fulfilled. They're both fulfilled there. And the true worship of God the worship of God frees me from being a slave to my sins and also to this world. Right? Our, the podcast we recorded today, we talked about this, of like, the world wants everything, and on Sunday when I refuse to work and I worship God, by the way, some of you have to work on Sunday. It's okay, we work towards that. Another question. But, new creation. I am a new creation. I'm not made for consumerism. I am not made for work. I'm not made for these things. I am made for God. And I remember that on a Sunday. I remember my creation. Right? And I remember that I was a slave to my sin. And the moment, the moment Jesus Christ took the first breath he did on Easter Sunday morning, I was no longer a slave. That's Sunday worship. And it comes together at the Last Supper. Bam! Love this stuff. So good. Okay, let's do one last thing. Any last questions? We only have a half hour. Yeah. I just had a comment um, about the evangelical thing. Yep.
1: I just wanted to like encourage you all. That's like the opposite experience I've had mm-hmm. of the Catholic Church. Is, awesome. Like the community being so open to sharing their faith. Mm. So it's like hard for me to understand like that's not normal.
0: That Are you mean, friends with mean, focus missionaries?
2: Yes. <laughs> 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 I said, are you friends with focused missionaries? But, no, but I
1: love it. Keep going. Yeah. Well, it was just an encouragement because I've heard, like, that Catholics have kind of lost their, their fire to share the gospel. Yep. But in my experience in the past, like, five months, has been, like, the opposite of
0: that. Okay, awesome. It was just encouraging. I love that. Your name? Alicia. Alicia. So Alicia said, for our TV audience, <laughs> that she's been encouraged by Catholics sharing the gospel and their openness and their fire to spread the word of God and, and the truth of Jesus. I need your guys' help with that. Lords is doing a good job of that in the Catholic world, but we have a long way to go. So, love it. Thank you. Yeah, it, was,
1: it was kind of funny because two masses ago, two Sundays ago, um, I brought like eight or nine of my Protestant friends. It was the, the Sunday that you were gone, and we all... <laughs>
0: Not what I was doing, so. so cool. That's awesome. There's a great story, <laughs> just to add to that, to witness to that. When I, when I, in, at the University of Colorado at Boulder, one of the most Catholic places on earth. So <laughs> say. When I, when I, when Jesus found me, like <laughs> crazy stuff. Um, but I was studying this, and I decided at some point I was like, "This is what I'm supposed to do with my." And I told my mom I went to be a missionary with focus and I was like I was like, Mom, we're gonna change the world. And my mom was probably, I don't know, my age roughly. And my mom looked at me and she was like, Brian, I love you very much, and that's very sweet. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember years later she told me she was like I she brought that up and she said, I did not believe you when you said that, but I see it happening. And like she has seen it because focus. When I was a focus missionary, there were twenty of us. There's like 500 focus missionaries now. It is growing exponentially. The first focus conference I went to as a sophomore in college had 50 people at it. Now, when you go to a focus conference, how big are they, stuff? Like, oh, <laughs> <laughs>
2: how
0: many? Oh, man. Is it right to 30,000?
1: it's
2: like
0: 20,000. Think of that. Like 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, like 20 30,000 college kids. Patrick, sometime, ask Patrick, like, his first conference he went to. I him before
2: he was Catholic,
0: and he was overwhelmed. But it's amazing, you walk in, and it's like there are 20,000 Catholic college students on fire with their faith. I never, when I was at CU, there were six of us. Three of us are priests. It's crazy. Okay, um, we have five minutes to do Eucharist. Okay. <laughs> Read your handouts. I put a couple of things there about Nemesis, if you remember. So Moses, on the night of Passover, Exodus 12, he gives the instructions and he says, this will be a memorial for you for all generations. Hebrew is zikaron. The Greek translation of the word remembrance is Which again, a remembrance does not mean I remember something that happened a year ago. That's not remembrance. In the Jewish mind, remembrance means to make a past event present now. That's Exodus chapter 12. On the night of Passover, the night before Jesus goes to his death, on Passover, the Greek translation of Zechariah is a nemesis. Right? And so the first three quotes on your handout are from top scholars talking about this. And this is me showing you. This is not Father Brian. Um, so the first one's from the Mishnah, which is an authoritative Jewish document. In every generation, a person is duty-bound to regard himself as if he personally has gone forth from Egypt. Why? Because it's not just I remember something that happened. It's not the 4th of July. I remember that we were part of England. We said we were set free. We're our own country. That's not Passover. Passover is I was a slave in Egypt, and I have been redeemed. That's what Jews do on Passover. I challenge people every year, go find a Hasidic Orthodox Jew, and go ask them this question. And I promise you, this is what they will tell you. Not a secular Jew. Secular Jews don't really believe in Judaism. Real Jews, this is what they believe. In every generation, a person is duty-bound to regard himself as if he personally has gone forth from Egypt, since it is said, You shall tell your son in that day, saying, It is because of that which the Lord did for me when I came forth out of Egypt. Therefore, we are duty-bound to thank, praise, glorify, honor, exalt, extol, and bless him who did for our forefathers and for us all these miracles. John Levinson, next quote, is the top Jewish scholar in the United States. He teaches scripture at Harvard University. He's probably retired now. He just quotes this. He's like, this is just it. Third quote, Joseph Fitzmaier one of the top two Catholic scripture scholars ever in the United States. Just as the Passover meal was for Palestinian Jews, a yearly anemnesis, so too Jesus now gives a directive to repeat such a meal with bread and wine as a mode of re-presenting, not representing, re-presenting to themselves their experience of him, especially at this Last Supper. Thus Jesus gives himself, his body, and his blood as a new mode of celebrating Israel's Feast of Deliverance. Passover is the Feast of Redemption. Read the rest of that. St. John Chrysostom, 5th century. We're not going to read that one. Read it yourself. Um, second from the bottom. In Jewish tradition, the 14th of Nisan, that's the ninth Passover. Passover night is also the time of final redemption. When Jews celebrate the Sabbat and the other great feasts in memory of their deliverance from Egypt, these are also days of hope that provide a foretaste of the final Sabbath rest still to come. N.T. Wright, I didn't bring one of his books tonight, I have tons of them. N.T. Wright is broadly considered the top scripture scholar in the world. Not a Catholic. Manna was not needed in Egypt. Remember my, the whole Exodus thing? You're like, oh, Father Brian's pretty creative. This is not me. Here's the top scripture scholar in the world. Manna was not needed in Egypt, nor would it be needed in the Promised Land. Remember, there's no sacraments in heaven. It is the food of inaugurated eschatology. Those are big words. We're going to skip them. The food that is needed because the kingdom has already broken in. On the cross, the kingdom of God broke into this world, right? The kingdom is already broken in, and because it is not yet consummated, right? We're out of Egypt, so it already happened, but we're not in the promised land yet. That's what he's saying. The manna happens in between Egypt and the promised land. Yes, redemption happened. Yes, we were liberated out of Egypt. We're not in the promised land yet. That is the Christian life. The daily provision of manna signals that the exodus has begun, but also that we are not yet living in the land. (coughs) Okay, next week what we're going to do, read all those quotes. They're amazing. Um, Let's do two really quick last things tonight. So here's what I want you to get. Next week we're going to go up into the church, We're going to walk through, I know, I don't know why everybody likes this class. Everyone loves this class. It's not my favorite class, but everyone else it is. We're going to go up in the church. We're going to look at all, at the altar and the tabernacle, investments and chalice and patent and all these things and explain them. Um, But before we do that, two last things. I hope you are beginning to understand why worshiping God is not about me feeling good. You feeling good is actually really important. And most of my life, since I decided to become a priest, I have spent so much of my time and energy thinking, how do we make people's experience of Sunday Mass not be terrible? And I have, in many ways, given my life for that. It is massively important, I believe in it, but that's not worship. Worship is this. Worship is not I connected with that sermon. Worship is not that song was amazing. Those things matter. Right? And our musicians here are incredible. That's not worship. Worship is the moment the Son of God gave His life on the cross for the world. And the reason we already talked about this Patrick's old church, you have, like, fog machines and zip lines. Do they have a zip line? No zip line. <laughs> no zip line. But, like, if they did, I always think, I could do that. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like, I could do that. Like, you know, you've got kind of, like, the electric guitar just slowly building. You know? And you've got and the guys on the bass, and he's got the long hair. going. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, the lights are low. The fog machine's going. <laughs> You know, and then the zip line comes. You're like, yes! You know, now that's cool. That's honestly, I'm like, that would be fun. I'm like, that would be awesome. Why don't we do that as Catholics? Because the liturgy is not mine. The liturgy is not what I do. The liturgy is not what we come up with. The liturgy is the moment Jesus Christ offered himself to the Father on the cross. That's what worship is. And that's why we never change it. That's why what happens at Mass, again, coming out of RCA, you guys are my people, when you're at mass, right, what I'm gonna say to you is I'm gonna say, Lift up your hearts, lift them up to the Lord. And you're gonna actually do it. Right? And when the priest elevates the host and the chalice, he's gonna say, Through him, with him, and in him, O God Almighty Father, and in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. And what you're going to say is, yeah, Jesus, you give everything in love and obedience to God the Father on the cross. Me too. That's worship. If you get that, you will never be born at Mass. And maybe once or twice. But you won't. When I learned this, we'll do it. We'll do this next week. When I learned this, I never went to Mass the same way again. And I have nonsense. Because as much as I'm like, I still get frustrated if I'm like at a Mass and someone else is preaching and I'm like, or me, and I'm like, that was a really bad homily. Uh-huh. That's frustrating. And if the music's bad, I'm like, that's frustrating. It's all in there. Through him, with him, and in him. That's what it means that's what it means to worship God okay super dramatic next week come here we'll do a little bit down here and then we'll go upstairs Um, and we will have breaking up in the word this Sunday so if you're coming to the church we hope you'll come to that invite your sponsors and uh, move forward yes so when our sponsors come next week are we is it just that or we're coming back down here back down here Yep, they can come if they want to stay upstairs for the Eucharist. They can. They are if they're allowed to come down and they can receive communion afterwards. Um, so, but but it's their choice.
1: Okay, wait, Alicia,
2: you're talking about Sunday or Wednesday? Sunday. Okay, good. Yeah. Right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. You
0: said Stations of the Cross on Fridays. Yep. At 6:30. Is that a.m. p.m., there's Stations (laughs) of the Cross. It's a way, when when Christians couldn't make it to the Holy Land because of Muslims, they started this thing called Stations of the Cross, because prior, Christians always went to the Holy Land to venerate where Jesus died. When they couldn't do that, they said, well, what if we put up little spots in the church where we reenacted Jesus' path to the cross? That's a great Lenten thing. Churches do it every Lent. We're doing it Friday nights. I will not be there. Um, we We have the deacons lead those. You're welcome to that, of course, but you don't have to be there. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you guys.